0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking, when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said... This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Father, as understanding dawned on the disciples, we pray that it would dawn on us as well, that you would awaken us and open our eyes to the glory of Jesus Christ, so that we might see him as we never have before. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. As we turn to our text and we consider the transfiguration, the thing you have to remember is where we've just been in Matthew 16. In Matthew 16, the Apostle Peter makes his confession of faith, that that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He recognizes that. That's great. But once that happens, a new theme is emphasized in Jesus' teaching, which is the necessity of His suffering and His death. And that throws the disciples for a loop. That's not what they were expecting The Messiah to say, and certainly not how they expected the Messiah's life to end. And so there's a struggle that they have. On the one hand, they've been given the grace to see that he is the one. But on the other hand, he's saying a lot of things and doing a lot of things that really don't fit their expectations of what that one would be like and and what he would do. And it's in that tension between what they know by faith And their doubts, because of their unfulfilled expectations, that Jesus takes three of his disciples up to the mountaintop to pray. And while they're there, the transfiguration happens. Now, what I want to do is think about what actually takes place at the transfiguration. Like, what's going on and what's its significance? So what happened at the transfiguration? I want to think about what God reveals In the Transfiguration and also what man obscures about that. And I want to see how when Jesus speaks his people listen. You're going to like this. I have three items for you and they're not alliterative but they do sound really similar like an old-fashioned sermon. Uh, At the Transfiguration there are three things that happen. There's a physical transformation, there's a prophetic conversation, and there's a fatherly declaration. And all this happens really quickly. One thing on top of another. First, there's the physical transformation. Matthew writes, He was transfigured before them, and His face shone like the sun, and His clothes became white as light. That physical transformation is not unprecedented in Scripture. This has a backstory, a history to it. Moses... When he experienced and encountered the presence of God and then returned to the people, he was glowing. There was this reflected glory that Moses had, and it was so unbearable for the people that they wanted him to cover his face. They couldn't bear to look at him. You find that in Exodus 34. So people who experience the presence of God can reflect that glory quite literally. It's also true for angels. Angels sent from the presence of God seem to have a radiance to them because of where they've come from. In Luke 2, in his account of the nativity, when the angels come to the shepherds, the glory of the Lord shines all around them. This reflected glory, like this this property that you carry from being in the presence of God. But Jesus, when He shines, shines with a glory of His own. He has a radiance that comes from Him. It's not just that He's reflecting the presence of God, but to be in His presence, they now realize, is to be in the presence of God. When we use the benediction from Numbers chapter 6, we say, may the Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And when you hear those words, you think metaphorically. May he make his face shine on you, his favor. May he like smile at you, as we might think. Here, it happens quite literally. The face of Jesus shines upon them. It's as if a veil is being removed. And they can behold him as he is. They can glimpse the reality of his divinity. That's the significance of this physical transformation. We might say that's the transfiguration proper, this physical change. But there are other things connected to it. There's a prophetic conversation. So they see him transformed. They see him radiant and glorious. And behold, Matthew says, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And if you check Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 9, which is his description of the transfiguration, he gives a little more context about what it is they're talking about. He says, uh, Jesus, uh, let's say, who appeared in glory and spoke, Moses and Elijah appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. Jesus' departure, And the Greek word for departure there is literally exodus. They spoke of his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So Moses and Elijah appear with Jesus and they're speaking to him about the thing he's been talking about, the necessity of his suffering and his death, his departure from this world that will take place in Jerusalem. Moses and Elijah are significant figures for a number of reasons, right? They each, in their own way, had a special exodus at the end of their lives where they were taken to be in the presence of God. But Moses and Elijah also have a representative significance. They sum up the law and the prophets. And when you want to refer to the Old Testament in the New Testament, the way you do that is, is you say the law and the prophets. So Moses and Elijah being here is really significant. It's as if the whole authority of the old testament has gathered together to hold counsel with jesus about the work that he's about to perform as if moses and elijah are saying to jesus you are the fulfillment of the promises that were given to us and your suffering will lead to glory that's fantastic And for someone witnessing that and appreciating the significance, that had to be huge. Not only to see the divinity of Jesus revealed in a glimpse, in a glorious radiance, but then to see these great figures of the Old Testament come and hold counsel with him and say, you are the one. What you are doing is what must be done to fulfill the covenant promises. That's a lot. But we actually get more. We get this fatherly declaration. This bright cloud descends. And again, this is very Old Testament. This is the way that God's presence was manifest to His people. The way He guided them in the wilderness. That cloud descends and then a voice from heaven speaks. The voice of God the Father saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. That's a declaration of love. This is my beloved son, but it's also a declaration of identity. Right, here, God the Father is confirming what's been revealed to Peter. You are the one. You are the Son of God. There can be no question, no doubt about who he is. He says, "...with whom I am well pleased." Not only is He the Son, but the Father is pleased with Him. He is satisfied with Jesus, even though Jesus is surrounded by people who are not. He is surrounded by people who are dissatisfied with Him. The scribes are dissatisfied with His teaching. His own disciples don't understand and are dissatisfied with the things that He's saying. But God the Father is well-pleased. He is perfectly satisfied with what Jesus is doing. There could be no greater endorsement than that. That's all that matters. Peter may be tempted in this moment to follow his own counsel with his idea of tents. The disciples may be tempted, as we'll see later, to listen to the interpretation of the scribes before they can take seriously what Jesus is saying. But God the Father is satisfied with Jesus and says, listen to Him. Don't listen to yourself. Don't listen to the experts. Listen to Him. God Himself gives that endorsement of Jesus Christ. That is what happens at the transfiguration. His divinity is seen, The fact that he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises, is revealed. And God himself gives him his stamp of approval, as it were, and says, listen to him. This is the highest revelation of God, the highest expression of the word of God. Listen to Jesus and what he says. So that's what happens at the transfiguration. But what does it mean? So we think about the significance of this. It's interesting to see how the witnesses to the transfiguration answered that question. What did it mean to them? If we fast forward a little bit and look at their writings, we can get an appreciation of what they thought. In 2 Peter 1, Peter writes about this experience. He says, this is starting in 2 Peter 1, verse 16. He says, "...for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty." For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. There's a couple of things in Peter's account that are interesting. When we see Peter acting in the moment, he has one idea of why he's there. And we'll talk about that. But later, when he remembers, he has a different idea of why he was there. He realizes he was there as a witness. He was there to see what God was doing, not to do something for himself. He describes what the Father did to the Son in that moment as giving him honor and glory. He gave Jesus honor and glory. So that the transfiguration in Peter's eyes reveals the divinity of Jesus and the glorification of Jesus. Like these things that he knew by faith, he has now been an eyewitness to the reality of. That's what the transfiguration means for Peter. John is also present. And in John's gospel, in the prologue, he alludes to this moment. He does it more obliquely than Peter does, but I think you'll see he certainly does it. This is in John chapter 1 uh, verses 14 through 16. John says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Then parenthetically he adds, John, John the Baptist, bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And then John resumes, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. So John too, when he reflects on what happens, what he remembers is that he was there as a witness he was there to behold something that god was revealing that glory witnessed at the transfiguration that was divine glory which in john's eyes signifies reveals that jesus is the son he is the logos the word he is the one through whom all things were made that moment of transfiguration for john confirms this reality It's interesting in that context, too, that parenthetically, he mentions John the Baptist. That for him, when he thinks about this moment and this glory, the the thought it triggers is the ministry of John the Baptist. Because that's what happens after the Transfiguration. The significance of John the Baptist becomes the topic of conversation. So, what happened at the Transfiguration is that the Father revealed who Jesus is. He said, this is the Divine Son. This is the Word made flesh. This is the Messianic Savior who was sent, in the words of Matthew one twenty one, to save His people from their sin. That's what God reveals at the Transfiguration to the disciples who witnessed it and to every generation of disciples who follow after them. But I want to think about what God reveals at the Mount and what man obscures. So God reveals at the Mount of Transfiguration the fullest expression of something that he's been revealing all along. And if you think about it in terms of mountaintop experiences and the presence of Moses and Elijah, it kind of makes sense. Because Moses had had his mountaintop experience with God and Elijah had too. In the book of Exodus, Moses is called up to Mount Sinai to commune with God and to receive God's word. The people of Israel were a rebellious people that Moses had been placed in authority over. And to that rebellious people, God reveals his structure and his order. He gives them his law. So to that chaos, you might think, that uncertainty, he gives order and certainty in his law. Israel had been called out of Egypt, and Egypt is a kind of symbol of the world lying in sin. But the people who were called out of Egypt brought Egypt with them. They brought the world, they brought its fears with them. And it's into that disorder that God speaks words of order when he gives his law, when he shows that there is a supernatural governing power, a sovereign Lord, over all things, a a way of determining what is right and wrong, a line of holiness and righteousness, if you will. So on the mountain, to Moses, God reveals himself. He reveals an aspect of his character, but not his whole self, not his whole self. Later, 600, 700 years later, the prophet Elijah is called up to the mountaintop. Just as God had once said, listen, Moses, and revealed himself. Now it's listen, Elijah. And Elijah is called to the mountain in a moment of despair. A moment where he is convinced that he is the only faithful person left in Israel. And that he is hunted. That he too will be destroyed. And to his despairing people on that mountaintop, God reveals his planned direction, which is deliverance. Elijah despairs of Israel's future, and God, in a still small voice, assures him, not only is there hope, but there's a plan, and it's a plan that God has set in place to rescue his people In the immediate context, God is going to deliver Israel through the king of Syria. And everyone the king of Syria doesn't take care of, God will send Jehu to take care of them. Whoever Jehu doesn't deal with, Elisha will deal with. Uh, To a man who believed that the plan was over, that the promises would go unfulfilled, suddenly God says, oh no, I have a plan and it's happening right now. To the man who believed that he was alone in his faithfulness, God says, oh no, I've preserved a remnant of people who have not knelt down to idols, who remain faithful to me. In that moment of despair to Elijah, on the mountaintop, God reveals, again, an aspect of his character. He reveals who he is and what he's doing. But again, it's not his whole self. But then at the transfiguration... It's as if God is saying, listen, apostles, I'm going to reveal something. I'm going to show you something. And there, to his church, God reveals himself in his Son, who is the fulfiller of the law through righteousness and the deliverer of his people through sacrificial love. And that revelation of Christ is the ultimate self-revelation of God. And seeing him, you see the Father. Nothing is held back. The revelation of Christ brings those earlier prophecies and promises into focus. It shows how they point to Christ to come. Moses was a type, a forerunner. Elijah was a type or a forerunner, but Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is here in fullness. That's what God reveals at the transfiguration. But at the very same time this is happening... At the very same time, God is speaking, man is making noise to drown out, to obscure what's being said. In Matthew 17, there are two human voices who interrupt or seek to counterbalance what God is revealing. There's the voice of Peter himself in verse 4, and then the voice of the scribes, which is recounted secondhand in verse 10. And just as the transfiguration reveals God fully, I think it's fair to say that these interruptions reveal the human impulses that all too often obscure God's revelation. All right? We'll label them this way. Man-made rituals that seek to take control of God's revelation, Peter's well-meaning effort to package the wonder that he's witnessing, and then man-made interpretation that seeks to channel the course of God's fulfillment. In other words, the scribes, their well-meaning criteria to verify fulfilled prophecy, which has the result of making God subject to human expectations. I want you to think about each of those bits of noise and what they signify. Peter's interruption, when Peter jumps in, there are two tendencies. They're very human that I think are revealed. First, Peter says, it is good that we are here. It is good that we are here. When he witnesses what's being shown to him, his response is to see how he fits, like what his purpose is. It's a good thing you brought us here if this was going to happen because I've got an idea of what needs to be done. At the root of Peter's impulse is the belief that he's present in order to make a contribution to the work. Like God is doing something clearly, and I'm here to do something too. I'm here to kind of make this thing work, to make it better, to enhance it in some way. That human contribution is necessary to make it happen. Peter sees God doing something, and it's as if it's not going to come to its fullness unless Peter jumps in with his great idea and says, hey, let's do this. And he says to Jesus, hey, if you want, I'll make three tents. And this has a very Feast of Booths aspect to it, where people would make tents and they would dwell on them and they'd remember the time in the wilderness. The Feast of Booths is connected to the dedication of the temple. God tabernacling with his people. This is a very pious impulse. That Peter has. He wants to make this kind of a a church service basically to give it the feel of a a familiar ritual or liturgy and he's willing to contribute to make that religious service happen. He's basically going to formalize this wonder. He's going to make it fit into a pattern that he recognizes and he can contribute to. And as I said these are well-meaning efforts on his part. Like, he's trying to do a good thing. He's actually trying to make this better than it is. But he makes two mistakes. First of all, Peter intervenes before the ongoing work is fully revealed. I mean, he literally jumps in with his idea of what would make this better before God's even done doing what he's doing. Like the best part, surely, is the voice, because the voice is the thing that he remembers. When he describes it afterwards, what he witnessed, it's not the, the, the radiance, it's the voice that looms large. But he jumps in before the, vo- vo- the voice is even spoken. Like if he just waited for God to speak, then he would have seen that his contribution was unnecessary, that there was no work for him to do here, that God was doing it, and God was revealing it, and he was there to witness it. So he intervenes before the work is done. But he also acts on a faulty understanding of what it is that God is doing. He wants to create three tents for Jesus, for Moses, for Elijah. And if you think about that, what that does essentially is demonstrate the essential equality of Jesus to Moses and Elijah. And you can appreciate why that would be something Peter would want to do. Like everybody reveres Moses, everybody reveres Elijah, but most people don't revere Jesus as they should. This would show them. That Jesus is on a level with Moses. Jesus is on a level with Elijah. If we could make some tents for them to dwell together, this would show that they all kind of go together, right? You should revere Jesus as you do them. But this equality between Jesus and Moses and Elijah is exactly wrong. Moses and Elijah have not showed up at the scene in order to say, Jesus, you're one of us. Good job. They've come here to acknowledge his superiority to them, that he is the fulfillment of the word spoken to them. Like Peter, a lot of well-meaning people try to respond to God without actually listening to what God has said. They act on a faulty understanding. They invent religious work for themselves to do. But that's not the pursuit of of the truth that God has revealed, that's the manifestation of that human impulse to jump in without understanding. There's another impulse, the scribal impulse, that comes up later. Once this has happened and they're coming down the mountain and the disciples start asking about the scribal interpretation that Elijah must come before the Messiah does. Now, there's a biblical basis for this. Malachi Four in the very last paragraph of the very last book of the Old Testament, God promises to send Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. That's Malachi 4, verse 5. So there's a good biblical reason to expect Elijah's return before the Messiah is revealed. But in Matthew 11... Jesus already told us that John the Baptist fulfills this prophecy. But the scribes don't accept that. They keep holding out for a more literal fulfillment of the prophecy. John the Baptist might suggest something Elijah like, but he doesn't tick off all the boxes for them. So in their mind, Elijah has not yet come, regardless of what Jesus may say. And then the disciples who are aware of this dispute see a vision in which Elijah is present and they remember that scribal objection and it must seem to them like maybe this fulfills the expectation of the scribes. They wouldn't accept that it's John the Baptist, but maybe we could go tell them we saw Elijah. Elijah did come. This did happen. Even though Jesus tells them, tell no one of the vision, they're clearly thinking, okay, but we do need to tell some people about the vision because this is going to answer their objections to Jesus' interpretation of prophecy. If you think about what the scribes are doing here, it's a lot like what the Army Corps of Engineers does to the Mississippi River. Uh, The whole reason Lori and I live in South Dakota, she's from here, but I'm from Louisiana, uh, we came because of one hurricane too many. If you remember Hurricane Katrina and then Hurricane Rita afterwards, when New Orleans was flooded and then Houston was evacuated, I said to Lori, hey, if you want to move to South Dakota, we can leave as long as we don't live here anymore. But a lot of people blamed the flooding of New Orleans on the way that the Army Corps of Engineers had shored up the banks of the Mississippi. In the old days, that river ran kind of wild. It would move one way, it would move another. The city of Vicksburg in Mississippi was famously on the bluff top above the river, but the river doesn't run under Vicksburg anymore because it moves around. But they wanted to channel that and make it predictable. They wanted to keep the power of that river within its bounds. And there's something about scribal interpretation that does the same thing. They've come up with a criteria that allows them to tell whether or not a prophecy has been fulfilled. And Jesus can say what he wants to say. But unless it ticks off our boxes, we refuse to accept that this prophecy has been delivered. That is a very human impulse. Faced with the incomprehensibility of God and the mystery of his ways, we take his word and, as it were, weaponize it against him and and use it as a way to kind of say, okay, you can work, but only this way, only within these confines. The scribes expect God to fulfill the future promises the way they expect them to be fulfilled. And they won't accept any other fulfillment. But as a result of that, they are waiting on the fulfillment of things Jesus says have already been done. They're waiting on the return of Elijah. And Jesus says, if you have ears to hear, Elijah has already come. You are literally waiting on something God has already fulfilled. There are a lot of people today who are doing exactly that who have gone to Scripture and with the best of intentions have, have invented criteria for themselves that even if the Bible says this has already taken place, they're insisting, no, no, that doesn't fit our expectations. So we're waiting on some more literal fulfillment later on. We do that with prophecy, but we do it more broadly with the Word of God In general, there are people who insist that God would never do things that God in Scripture says that he does. And that God must do things that God in Scripture says that he does not. And if God, as he reveals himself, does not meet the expectations we have of who God ought to be, then God can say what he wants to say, but until my boxes are ticked off, I will not believe. That's the situation the scribes find themselves in. And the disciples, though they have faith, find the influence of that conviction hard to escape. So that though Jesus has already told them this has been fulfilled, they're still bringing it to Jesus after the transfiguration, expecting him to satisfy these expectations. The solution to these errors by the way, is simply to listen to what God the Father says. Like the solution to the errors is to listen to him. To listen to him. When Jesus speaks, his people listen. Now, Moses and Elijah had both been called to their respective mountaintops so that God could reveal himself to them. God spoke and they listened. But that's not why Jesus was called up. Jesus wasn't called up to listen. Jesus went up to speak. Jesus isn't spoken to. Jesus speaks. Jesus speaks God to us because He is God. And interestingly, Moses himself laid the groundwork for the transfiguration. In Deuteronomy 18, Moses gives instruction to the people and he says, a prophet's going to come. God is going to raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. And then he adds, to him you shall listen. Echoing the words that God the Father himself would speak. And what Moses said then, God the Father says, Now this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen. Peter and John listen." Whatever their reactions in the moment were, once Jesus spoke, they listened. They rightly understood that they were witnesses, not workers, in the glory of God. As John puts it, again in John chapter 1, the children of God are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. What changed? What changed? So that men who, when they witnessed the transfiguration, were still throwing up these arguments, and then when the Spirit worked in them to reveal God's Word, suddenly saw things entirely different. What changed was, they listened. Jesus spoke, and they listened. Years later, John realized that the truth of Christ's suffering, that that, that his sufferings were necessary, that what Jesus had said he had to do, he literally had to do, that suffering was the only way to glory. John may have doubted it when Jesus first said it, but by the end of his life, not only did he accept it, but he saw himself as part of it. In the book of Revelation, John describes himself as a partner in tribulation. He says he's sharing in the patient endurance of those who are in Christ. He gets it now because he's listened. John is interesting because John sees another vision of Jesus at the beginning of the book of Revelation. The Son of Man is revealed to him. A passage we looked at a few weeks ago. Jesus appears and he speaks. And interestingly, he begins just like he does... After the vision of the transfiguration, he says, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen. It's interesting. The voice from heaven at the transfiguration says, This is my son. Listen to him. But then the vision ends. But Jesus touches them, he speaks, he says, don't have fear, but that's not part of the vision. So it's as if the voice says, listen to him, but then he doesn't actually speak as part of the vision. So when you hear that, you might think the listen to him is a reference to what he says immediately afterward, which is the fear not. Uh, you might think it's a general statement, just listen to everything that he says. Interestingly, I see these words of Jesus in Revelation 1 And to me, I kind of see them as the the continuation of that vision. Like Jesus is revealed as the Son of Man, and then he speaks and reveals himself. He declares who he is. Part of who he is is the risen Lord, the one the grave could not hold. Before the resurrection, at the transfiguration, he says, tell no one. Tell no one what you've seen until after the resurrection. Only then can you speak of these things. But in Revelation 1, when he declares himself, he doesn't say, tell no one. He says, write, therefore, declare it, tell it. Everything that you've seen, write it down and testify to it. What you've witnessed, make known. And the difference there is simply the resurrection, the triumph over death. Christ's atoning death and his resurrection to glorious life makes all the difference. That's what his followers are called to to declare. So the apostles listened to him, and they became the foundation of the church. The scribes didn't listen to him, and they persisted in their error. They kept waiting for him to do what he had already done. And in that contrast, we can see the voice speaking to us and saying listen to him we can see that either we listen we accept what jesus says and we follow him or we persist in our error like the scribes and we don't and we wait in vain for a deliverance that has already taken place so listen to him listen to him if we listen then we don't have to invent for ourselves some way of making God's work better. If we listen to Jesus, Jesus institutes our worship. He tells us how to worship Him and not the other way around. If we listen to Jesus, then Jesus tells us how to interpret the promises and the prophecies. We don't have to come up with some measure to judge whether or not what He's saying is true. If we listen to Jesus, then Jesus explains to us that this present suffering is necessary to pass through so that we might join Him in the glory that is to come. If we listen to Jesus as He reveals Himself, then we see who He is and who He has called us to be. It's as simple as that. In the face of Jesus' divine glory, in the face of His fulfillment of all of the old promises in the face of the declaration of God the Father that this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. All you're called to do is to listen to Him. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsioufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.